I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. The durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. With the current interest in climate change, sequestering carbon, and farmers getting carbon sequestration payments being at an all-time high, many no-tillers have been excited about the thought of earning additional income through incentive payments. Whether it's through current privately financed carbon programs or new ones being developed by the Biden administration in Washington, there's considerable interest in sequestering carbon to avoid the release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But adding carbon incentive payments to your bank account may be easier said than done. There appear to be a number of roadblocks to getting on the carbon sequestration bandwagon, especially when it comes to being paid for having no-tilled for a number of years. Today's spring 2021 episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast will zero in on whether veteran no-tillers can qualify for carbon payments. Here's what we'll be covering in today's podcast. To start, we'll head north of the border and share why Saskatchewan no-tillers are unhappy with the fact that they may be totally shut out of the Canadian government's proposed carbon sequestration program. Next, we'll report on new Bayer Crop Science and Corteva AgriScience carbon sequestration programs getting underway, and how one program may allow no-tillers to be paid for what they've done in previous years. Then, we'll touch base with Karthik Carruther with Locus Agricultural Solutions to get an insider's perspective on how the carbon credit marketplace works. And finally, we'll wrap up this podcast with an interview Frank Lesseter did with Ryan Stockwell at Indigo Ag discussing the opportunities for long-term no-tillers being part of carbon payment programs. Let's start out by heading north into Western Canada to learn why Saskatchewan no-tillers aren't in a cheerful mood when it comes to carbon sequestration. They learned in the spring of 2021 that growers who no-till could be totally shut out of the potentially lucrative Canadian market from carbon credit offsets. Officials with Saskatchewan's Environmental Ministry indicate any carbon sequestration activity, such as no-till, must currently have less than a 40% adoption rate in order to qualify. It will not be eligible since no-till, or zero-till as it's called in Canada, is already used on 74% of Saskatchewan's grain acres. No-tillers and commodity group leaders didn't see this restriction coming, as many had expected to add income by enrolling in the Canadian government program. In fact, the government's 40% adoption rule will disqualify all but a handful of Saskatchewan grain growers from selling carbon credits. Big dollars are at stake, as the Saskatchewan provincial government expects to sequester as much as 12 million metric tons of carbon a year. The goal of the nationwide program is to encourage Canadian industrial companies to invest in cleaner technologies through the adoption of greener production practices. 
Unfortunately, the Canadian government plans to ignore the fact that the majority of stabilized cropland carbon over the past 25 years has been due to no-till. Making the situation worse is the fact that Canadian growers feel that they will be penalized twice when it comes to carbon. Besides losing no-till incentive payments, they're already paying a national carbon tax on non-exempt activities of $20 per ton of greenhouse gases that escape into the atmosphere, which will increase to $50 per ton over the next few years. An economic analysis by the Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan indicates that this will add at least $12.50 per acre in yearly cropping costs for the typical Saskatchewan grain grower. While the Canadian government's carbon tax offers farm exemptions for truck and tractor fuel, it still taxes the energy costs involved with fertilizer, seed, ag chemical, shipping of equipment parts, grain drying, and transportation of grain. The result will be higher cropping costs paid by Canadian growers. Many U.S. no-tillers may end up being treated the same as the Canadian growers. If you've been using no-till and cover crops for 20 years, you'll likely not be able to take advantage of the carbon sequestration benefits with most programs without adding new practices to your operation. Next up is the spring 2021 announcements from Corteva AgriScience and Bayer Crop Science about their carbon initiative programs. The Corteva AgriScience program will guarantee qualified farmers $5 to $20 per acre each year for sequestering carbon. But like most carbon initiatives, the program requires enrolled farmers to use cover crops, strip tillage, or no-till only on new acres. In other words, carbon sequestration payments are not available for acres that have been no-tilled for years. However, the Bayer Carbon Initiative has been updated, so veteran farmers who have been no-tilling for the past 10 years may qualify for historical payments. For 2021 and 2022, the Bayer program will be available to growers in 17 states. Growers can earn up to $9 per acre in annual payments for up to five years in the past, based on $3 per acre for using no-till or strip-till and $6 per acre for seeding cover crops. In determining which fields might be eligible for historical payments, Bayer has prepared several examples to determine eligibility. Any fields that have used either no-till or strip-till in conjunction with cover crops before 2012 are not eligible. Fields that have been no-tilled continuously since 2012, where cover crops have been used since 2015, are eligible for cover crop payments. Fields that have been no-tilled since 2016, where cover crops were adopted by 2014, are eligible for both no-till and cover crop rewards. Fields where no-till slash strip-till or cover crop practices are started in 2021 will be eligible for future cover crop and no-till slash strip-till rewards. There are some other North American carbon sequestration programs in which growers may get paid even if they previously no-tilled or strip-tilled their fields. In many programs, practices can qualify for credits for a total of 10 years, so if the practices were introduced, say, two years ago, they may qualify for payments for eight years going into the future. But every program is different, and there are several additionalities that may qualify no-tilled or strip-tilled land for carbon credits. Next, we turn to an excerpt from a longer conversation I had with Locus Egg Senior VP of Strategy and Sustainability, Karthik Carruther, who explains some basics about how carbon sequestration is measured and verified, and how Locus Egg's Carbon Now program guides farmers through the process of monetizing carbon credits. Carbon Now experts actually track and evaluate the different methodologies being used by various carbon marketplaces to identify the best fit for a given farmer. Locus Ag is also the manufacturer of a product called Rhizolizer Duo, which can complement a farmer's carbon farming efforts by accelerating carbon sequestration. 
We're going to talk about the carbon markets today. And, you know, I understand the carbon markets sort of fit into an existing structure of carbon offset rules and organizations. Could you just explain the carbon registries and how they create the regulations and protocols that the new ag-related programs are expected to follow? That's a fantastic question because I'd almost start things off by saying it does not follow a set of rules, all, all the different players that are offering carbon credits. There is no central framework that they go off of. It's kind of, it feels like when, when someone says a carbon credit, everyone assumes common language, but it actually, if you, if you dig beneath it, it's actually very different how people approach it. The, the, the fundamental kind of the bedrock of where this is coming from is, is, is actually defined by the uh, IPCC guidelines, Intergovernmental Panel of uh, Climate, Change, uh, Climate Change Scientists, which is a global intergovernmental scientific grouping where scientists from all the different countries that are part of it sign off in saying, and this report comes, it basically explains, this is what's happening and this is what needs to be done and this is these are some, some, some suggestions of how it needs to be done. That is then taken up by organizations like the ISO, more defining guidelines um, that they hope people will follow. So, uh, for example, there's what's called 14064 that deals with greenhouse gas emissions. When registries and private players get into the mix, if they follow these guidelines, what that means is that then they are in accordance to how carbon accounting needs to be done. So carbon accounting is kind of the beyond end all at the end of it. So if I am if I'm a company and I'm buying offsets to offset my footprint, which is which is what these carbon credits are, I need to know that the offsets mean something. It actually represents something. If they don't, then so the offsets that you purchase are not tied to these specific goals or guidelines. It's someone's interpretation of it. And, and you cannot really use it in this accounting. Then the question becomes, okay, what is it then? So then from that, there are four global registries, nonprofit registries. And then there's also governments that have come up with, with specific frameworks. So I can give examples. In terms of government frameworks, um, there's the Australian Emissions Reduction Fund. There's the New Zealand one. And they have a central framework by which they dictate how this should be done within their countries. There are four non-governmental, uh, non-profit registries. So there, there's the gold standard, there's VERA, which is the largest in the world, Climate Action Reserve, and then there's American Carbon Registry. Each of these have been around for a long time, very well respected. For example, uh, VERA was birthed by the World Economic Forum, I mean, and, and the WBCSD is behind. It's, it's, like a, it's like a big, legit global entity that's got the track record. Climate Action Reserve came off the California government's climate registry program. So it's, it was spun out of that. And it still has a linkage to the California government. So, so there are these entities. Uh, and then you've heard of the USDA now getting into the mix, trying to see if maybe they need to be doing something in this space, similar to what, for example, the Australian government's done or someone else's done. Because one of the takeaways from, if you look at the Paris Accords, the cheapest way of trying to get to your goal is to actually help get behind agricultural carbon credits. It makes sense to have such a framework. The problem is the way these are defined are so, in a way, difficult for direct day-to-day -day implementation that many groups have felt, I'll create something simpler. 
because I mean, there's a problem with permanence, there's a problem with additionality, there's a problem with soil sampling. Let's come up with a system where it does away with these issues. So, so they come up with something which are no longer tied to the requirements that were laid out according to the guidelines, uh, so that it's easier for the farmer or it's easier for someone else. But when you do that, you're no longer tied to what the guiding principles were. So there's a huge risk by backing such entities. There's a risk that if they're not following those guidelines, that the buy side, the people who actually buy the carbon credits, if they realize that, that their purchases are potentially meaningless from the point of view of carbon accounting, they're still helping farmers, which is an amazing thing. And it's a separate thing. That, that's the key thing. It's separate. And that could be a completely separate program, but it cannot be a carbon offset program. So you, you as a farmer would run the risk of signing up with an organization which might suddenly lose its buy side because the, the buyers realize, you know what, this company does not follow these guidelines. So I cannot actually legitimately account for offsets buying carbon from, from these guys. What I'm hearing you talk about is what we hear about a lot is the methodologies, I think, for measuring carbon and sort of figuring out how the different farming practices affect that long-term carbon storage in the soil. Can you just talk a little bit ex about how these different, these methodologies differ? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> the purpose is not to throw anyone under the bus, just to show the difference. Certain groups I'll name because they do follow the guidelines. So let's take CAR and VERA. So Climate Action Reserve, CAR, the, their methodology requires a 100-year permanence, which is what the guidelines talk about also. How you interpret the 100-year permanence is a big deal then, because no one is going to sign a contract saying, I'm going to keep carbon in the soil for 100 years. I mean, it might work for other industries um, where it gets pumped down into a mine shaft and it's sealed, but not in agriculture. I mean, you got, you got, who knows what's going to be happening 50 years from now, 30 years from now. So Climate Action Reserve deals with that from the, like in two ways. One is either you can commit to 100 years or you can do what's called tenure accounting, which means you can commit to a certain number of years, but you're prorated that amount of carbon credits. So if you're only committing to five years, you actually get 5% because it's five out of 100 years. 5% of what you owe. So you might sequester 10 tons. I mean, let's say hypothetically, I mean, you did amazing and you're sequestering 10 tons. Uh, this past year, but according to the Climate Action Reserve accounting, you're, you're, you'll be getting 5% of that that's owed for this year. So 5% of 10 tons is 0.5, but then you also don't get it that, I mean, in the next year when it's due, you get it actually on an annuity basis across the period of time you commit it to kind of de-risk. So, so if, you're, if you've signed up for five years, Let's say the third year I up sticks and, and don't follow anything. And I say, you know what? I'm out of this program. So there's a risk involved for the people who are buying these credits. So Climate Action Reserve deals with it from, by not giving you all of that money you're owed up front by actually um, divvying it up across each of the years. Um, and it's only for the years you're still in the program. So, so not only is it 0.5 tons, but it's 0.5 tons across five years. So you get 0.1 ton for each year across the five years. So the second year you get 0.1 from the first year and 0.1 from the second year. So you get 0.2 the second year and it stacks up. But you could see, I mean, you could, you're could you talking about a 10 ton amazing performance, but you're only getting 0.2 tons the second year. That's nothing. I mean, if, if, if it's $20 a ton, 0.2 is like you're getting four bucks and it costs more. So it's Climate Action Reserve.
Vera, which is the largest uh, non-profit climate registry in the world, carbon registry in the world, they deal with the same 100-year permanence issue by uh, asking people to come up with a project bucket. You can, and the minimum length of time for the bucket is 30 years. And that's on the project developer. But it allows for farmers to engage or, or work or, or sign up into that bucket at much shorter increments. So you could have a farmer sign up for five years, 10 years, whatever the project developer decides is going to be part of the program. And it's the total estimated carbon across those five years or 10 years for all of these farmers within the 30-year bucket that then gets estimated out as part of the 100-year permanence requirement. So they deal with it slightly differently, but they're still tied to the 100-year permanence, but the farmer does not have to sign up for 100 years commitment. But the project developer has to sign up for a 30-year permanent. So someone has to take the risk. Now, if you look at some of the private entities that have come into, onto the scene, they'd say, you know what? This 100-year permanence thing is ridiculous. We'll give you 10-year permanence and we'll give you all the credits you're owed for those 10 years. So there are actually quite a few of them now. And they'll just give you some actually even say two-year permanence, which I don't know how, I mean, that's almost like annual cropping. I mean, how, how does that even work? Philosophical standpoint and for carbon markets, I don't understand yet. But they say, you know what, I'll give you a five-year contract and you'll get all of the credits you're owed within the five years. It's not tied to anything. So that those are groups uh, that, that approach it that way. So those are differences in terms of permanence. So let's talk about differences in terms of additionality. So additionality is this concept by which the purpose of a carbon credit from a philosophical standpoint, how it was set up a long time ago, is that the carbon credit is not for things you do anyway. It's for things that you need to be compensated for because otherwise you won't do it. So, for example, if you want to do cover cropping, um, it's, it's an expense. I mean, it might cost $15, $20 an acre. You will not do cover cropping by yourself unless someone gives you a carbon credit so, and it helps compensate for some of the expense. That's the philosophy of additionality, that someone is helping to compensate for something you wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. So way Climate Action Reserve approaches additionality is if more than 50% of the people or the acreage within your region, your county, follow a certain practice, then from an additionality point of view, it means that people are already doing it without much incentive. So we cannot allow for the practice to be considered additional. So you're, I'm sorry, you don't qualify to do cover cropping or reduced tillage or minimum tillage. Same with Vera. Vera is actually even a tighter bar. It's a lower bar. It's 20%. If more than 20% of the people within your region follow it, you're out of luck for that practice. It's, it's, it's very difficult then. So some of these other groups, private parties, they say, you know what? That, that makes no sense. If someone's doing something good, let's just compensate them for it. So there, there is no additionality requirement then. So, and, and many of them also allow for a look back of 10 years or five years. The way the IPCC approaches that is, it's, if something's already done 10 years ago, it's already baked in in terms of our climate. It's already happened. You can't really take credit for that. Right. But many of the carbon programs do give credit for it. So again, you can see the diff those are the differences. So, so that's why, I mean, at some point, some kind of standardization happens. There is a risk of following programs that do not tie in with these 
Uh, it's okay as long as you're not signing long-term commitments. But if you're signing long-term commitments, these are things to watch out for. It might look great now, but it might tie you up for 10 years, five years, and then you might get a check this year and then next year are out of luck, but you can't go and join anyone else because you're still legally bound to this group. Third part is soil sampling. Soil sampling is, an, and we're dealing with it, Locus, we, and we filed our soil sampling plan with Climate Action Reserve. Um, we're doing the same with Vera. Those are the two groups that we hope to um, work with because they are tied to the IPCC guidelines. They, they work with ISO and others. But soil sampling is exceptionally expensive because for it to be usable, you need to take more samples. And the more samples you take, the more expensive it is. And it costs a lot of money to take soil sampling. So Climate Action Reserve and VERA require, um, especially if you're talking about new technologies. So Locus uses a, a, a technology to help sequester carbon into the soil. So that can only be uh, measured through direct sampling. It cannot be modeled. So we need to go and, and, and measure. And we're taking on that cost of measurement. Many carbon programs do not require any kind of measurement. They say you can model everything, which is, which is problematic from the point of view of, like you don't know what's happening under the soil. You're just going off of models. There's no guarantee that what you're claiming for the model is actually accurate. I mean, they do try to work on trying to make it as accurate as possible, but just to give a, an idea of the, the sense of accuracy, I mean, for, for example, with a 10,000 acre farm, I mean, we might be taking 5,000 samples, up to 5,000 samples. And you're talking about a model which, which takes 5,000 samples across the whole country. I mean, that, that's the level of difference. So you have to then think about the quality of the credit that gets generated. So the, the higher the level of visibility into what's actually happening on the ground, higher the value of the carbon credit, because the buyer is more confident that what is being claimed is true. Many claim that it's an advantage that you can just go off of models. I say it's a disadvantage because you get less clarity into what's actually going on. So anyway, those are like the differences. So we talked about permanence, additionality, and then soil sampling. Many require soil sampling or at least soil sampling every few years and go off of models in the interim period. Uh, but many others just say, you know what? No soil sampling required. Just go full on modeling, okay. which, is, which is cheap, which is easier to do. Sure. The quality of the credit would be a lot less. So is that sort of what we would we would hear about verified carbon credits? Is that what you're talking about? Or is, is that language too loose? Oh, know? verified is, is different. Verified is when, and that, it's, it's too loose. I mean, that's a great way of saying it. Because <laughs> verified basically says that you got a third party to come and say that what you're claiming is true. And you can set up your own framework. I mean, it doesn't need to be a climate action reserve or a VERA one. You can just set up your own protocol and someone, third party you hire to come and say, you know what, everything you've done, they're just doing an audit saying, yeah, it's as per, so it's verified. So it sounds legit, but actually, I mean, is it really? I don't know. Yeah, okay. Well, and so I understand, I believe that like the actual carbon credits that you're talking about, that VERA and Climate Action Reserve are, are issuing, those actually are issued a serial number, right? Yes. And so a farmer, they would know about that then. So, I mean, if they sign up for this program, they'll know, you know, these carbon credits mm -hmm. have gotten these serial numbers. Then when those carbon credits are purchased, mm -hmm. those serial numbers are retired. 
Yes. So what is your recommendation when farmers are evaluating the different carbon program options that they could participate in? What what do you recommend they take into consideration? That's a a great question. (laughs) Um, I hope growers do take into account the long-term viability of a program because they're signing contracts that that go a length of time. So it's not just about this year, it's about next year and the years after. I mean, personally, if I were a grower, I'd try to see whether I am aligned with IPCC guidelines. Because mm-hmm. if I'm not, that's a huge risk that I'm taking. Yeah. Um, so that's one. The second is how much, what is the workload that I need to be taking on? Certain companies basically say, you know what, we'll pay for everything. You'll just get a check at the end of it. So others say, you know what, you have to do a few things. So you, you have to look at the cost benefit analysis and see what works best for you. How much time do you have? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's value to your time. So how, how would you approach it? And finally, what's the quantum that you get at the end of it? Certain things might be easy, but you hardly get anything. And certain things might require a little bit of investment, but you can get a lot out of it. And it's actually good for your, your farm. All of this also has to do with how the grower is positioned. Carbon sequestration is just one element. There are so many other elements to what the grower does that impacts the ecosystem. So if there are programs that position them as, you know what, they're contributing so much more to the ecosystem, let's compensate them for that too. I mean, it might show up in terms of the value of the credit rather than anything that's quantifiable. So for example, they use certain practices and they reduce fertilizer use, but they also do certain things to help increase biodiversity, things like that. Those are things that, are, that matter. And certain programs do help include that and what gets pushed out into the world. And, and I think the, the, the grower needs to be rewarded for things like that. Uh, balancing ease of use with the reward, the size of the reward, what the grower themselves are doing to the ecosystem, whether all of that is coming into all of this. And also finally, whether it's tied to IPCC guidelines, because if not, there is a risk, huge risk potentially. Sure, okay. Um, so now I just want to pivot a little bit. Locus Ag's Carbon Now program, um, like we've said, is not a carbon marketplace. Can you just explain how uh, Locus Ag is partnering with farmers to pair them up with the different carbon marketplace programs? Yeah, so I'll just introduce Locus a little bit because that will kind of explain the context. So uh, we are a microbial, non-GMO microbial soil probiotics company. So our founders had worked a lot on human health and animal health, uh, like very successfully, a lot of published scientific published literature. So we try to bring the same science into plants and, and see how we can make plants do better. As part of that, we found a way to substantially increase carbon sequestration into the soil using these tools. And in the same tool, we could, we could actually help reduce fertilizer use, help reduce soil nitrous oxide emissions, which is the biggest contributor uh, in terms of agriculture's contributor to climate change in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So when people use fertilizers, quite a bit of it gets into the atmosphere as nitrous oxide, which is 300 times worse than carbon dioxide. Our products actually helps reduce that flux from the soil uh, by up to 80%. That's our forte. We do that really well. What we don't do well is the buy side, because we, we're, we, we're not in contact with Amazon or Microsoft or any of these big companies. We're a startup, I mean, our, our, it's signs that we're good at. So we realized we 
early on that we needed to have someone else take that on. That's why we partnered with Blue Source. Blue Source is the largest, I would say the most premier environmental solutions provider in North America. They've sold over half a billion dollars worth of carbon credits, um, 150 million carbon credits generated in forestry, agroforestry, whole bunch of different types of projects around the world, but especially North America. So, so we couldn't find a better partner than them just because they've been there, done that, and they're connected to everyone. The, the, the thing about Blue Source, and it helped us uh, in our information gathering, is that they only work with these IPCC-backed registries for the very reason that I mentioned, because they want to make sure that the buyers can all, always be confident that what gets sold is long-lasting. It's not something that will go away tomorrow or the day after. So, so we're working with farmers to offer this product that provides agronomic benefits. So we're not participating in a carbon program or offering a carbon program. We're saying, look, our product first helps you agronomically. We're seeing increases in yield depending upon the type of crop by up to 40%. If you have soil health, it's going to impact your productivity. It's going to impact your time to market. All the other, I mean, you can reduce your chemical inputs. Plants healthier. You don't need to use as much pesticide and things like that. And corn, I mean, we had an amazing year last year. Great, I mean, 10, 20 bushels, uh, 25 bushels uh, per acre increase in, in, in productivity. So, so that's like the first thing. I mean, we can help you directly with the same product that, and because we're improving soil health and we're making the plant a better carbon pump, we're putting so much more carbon into the soil, up to like five, 10 X more than any other practice, but in combination with those regenerative practices. So that's the pitch to the farmer that, will help you agronomically on, on a two to one or three to one return, just on the agronomic basis. But then on top of that, you can, you're, we're sequestering so much carbon and in all of these other ecosystem benefits that we can then help you working with Blue Source to generate credits to sell into all these major companies using these IPCC backed um, formulations. So Blue Source is coming up with a program within the next few weeks, it'll be announced. Um, which, which is actually going to go into the nuances of how exactly that's going to be. But, but in a general sense, this is how it's going to be offered. Okay, I see. That really gets to my final question, which was, you know, a lot of no-tillers, a, long, a lot of long-time no-tillers mm -hmm. are, are definitely getting the impression that they're going to be completely shut out of the carbon markets uh, altogether, yeah. basically, because they've been using no-till and cover crops for so long, or they're in an area where the practice is widely used, so they're not going to be able to get those. I mean, my question, I guess, is are they right about that? Uh, and what sort of practices could long-term no-tillers add to yeah. engage in the, the marketplace? I think if somebody's been doing this for 30 years, 40 years, they should be rewarded. I mean, absolutely. I mean, they've done something that not only helps their soil, the soil is, I mean, first of all, even forgetting about climate, soil, everything starts from the soil. They've taken care of the soil. They need to be rewarded for that. And I mean, I'll give the example of forestry. Money is in the carbon marketplace. The, using the same additionality argument, you can actually, you can generate carbon credits to preserve ecosystems, uh, preserve rainforests. I mean, they're called red plus credits. They're the, if you're looking at the carbon marketplace, the highest value credits are for carbon removal from the atmosphere rather than future carbon mitigation. So if you're preventing future emissions, so for example, hey, I'm going to drive a car, an electric car rather than a gasoline operator, it's a future emissions reduction. The car, any carbon credits 
created through that kind of project or going from some kind of power to wind power or solar power is worth less than carbon removal, which is take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and putting it away. There's right now only one scalable cheap solution, I mean, apart from agriculture, I'll get to agriculture, which is forestry, basically using plants to, to, to capture the carbon, putting it into the ground. So, so in forestry, there isn't that much land for us to reforest, and we should reforest as much as we can. But there are carbon credits that can be generated through these very same registries for preserving rainforests, for preserving forests, because there's value to preserving those ecosystems. So if somebody has been doing this for 40 years, there's value in incentivizing them to preserve what they've done because they've created this dynamic ecosystem under the soil of beneficial microbes that help contribute to more and more carbon. Being. Why don't we just help incentivize that? So again, that's my opinion. So how can farmers like, like, like I mean, such wonderful farmers, how can they take part? It, unfortunately, it's, I mean, and I don't want to make it sound like a spiel, uh, but it is through partnering with, with companies like us where we bring something that is additional to what they're already doing. So they're no longer kept out of the carbon markets. In our research, we've found that in soils that have low soil organic carbon, our product does not work as well as soils that have much higher soil organic carbon. Soil organic carbon is going to be higher in soils where farmers have been practicing no-till for a long time. So if you're, we'd love to partner with farmers who've been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years, because that means our product's going to be performing that much better uh, because we're adding these beneficial microbes to the beneficial microbes that are already there so uh, we can offer that and, and work with the farmers to help benefit from what they've already done. And it's an approved practice change. Well, Karthik, I really appreciate this. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Thanks so much for having us at this, on this podcast. As someone who champions no-till, uh, it's a shame that all of the farmers who are part of this movement are being locked out. Um, and I mean, we really need to talk about additionality. So if the USDA comes up, with a protocol, and it takes care of this additionality issue, the ecosystem wins. And that's the whole point. We're really glad that we're part of this podcast. Thank you so much for having us. And if the listeners need any advice, we'd be happy to offer, um, even if it's not us. The problem is, it's a little bit of the Wild West right now, and it's confusing. So if people need to get guidance, we're there to help offer any advice. Karthik, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time and all of your knowledge and your enthusiasm for the industry. Yeah, thank you. Likewise, likewise. Thank you so much, Julia. We'll turn to our final segment in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. One of the real advantages of no-tilling is you can trim back your uh, machinery needs and your machinery costs. And uh, looking overseas, this came up at the 
2004 National No-Tillage Conference, which was held in Des Moines that year. And by no-tilling, British grower Jim Bullock had trimmed his machinery costs by 30% in England. He's a no-tiller from Worcestershire, England, and he relies on a pair of 150 horsepower tractors and rents another tractor in the same horsepower range at harvest time with his 850 acres of no-till. Before switching to no-till, a pair of 200 horsepower tractors were necessary to handle the tillage work. And with no-till, Bullock says the parts needs have been reduced, fuel consumption was cut in half, and he and his brother no longer need to hire extra labor at harvest time. So even as far back as 2004, international no-tillers were recognizing the value of trimming machinery costs with no-till. Finally, we're going to wrap up this podcast with a conversation between no-till farmer editor Frank Lesseter and Ryan Stockwell. A no-tiller located in northern Wisconsin, Ryan is also an Indigo Ag staffer involved with the carbon program. In this conversation, Frank asked Ryan a number of carbon payment eligibility questions for growers who have no-tilled for a number of years or used cover crops on existing ground, along with how to enroll new acres in the program. They'll also share ideas on how adding more conservation practices can qualify for future carbon payments. Here are Ryan and Frank. So the question I wanted to answer is, we've got guys who've been no-tilling for a long, long time. Are they going to get shut out of the carbon market? Or, I mean, if they add more acres and take it on, I understand those will qualify. And then Bayer Mm -hmm. this week just said they would go back and pick up people who've been no-tilling since 2012. So I'm going to turn it over to you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, lots of stuff to unpack there, Frank. So... Yeah, so let, let me start with, with the basics and understanding this. The, the key thing to remember here in all of this is that, one, the carbon market is fairly young. You know, we don't have a lot of distinguishing factors in here. Right now, it's because there's not a lot to it, we kind of consider it one market. But the reality is, is that with many markets, just about any market out there, the, the more mature it becomes, the more distinguished the different products become. And products are designed and, and suit particular buyers. So we're starting to see that a little bit to the extent that with Bayer's announcement that they're going for a particular carbon credit buyer. Sure. And it, Indigo is going for another audience. So as these markets mature, we will see a little more clarity in that distinction. So one thing that Indigo is always focused on is getting top dollar for the carbon credits for their growers. So we are aiming to become that triple A rated carbon credit out there. So, you know, if I can borrow a metaphor from the bond market, you have, you know, different rating agencies that rate bonds and that's vital information for the buyers of those bonds to make decisions on where they invest their money. And that's very similar to what, what I think, this is again, just my personal opinion, where I think the, the carbon market will go over the next five and 10 years. We'll see that sort of information help improve the efficiency of that market. So that's an important thing to remember here. And tied to that is understanding, again, the fundamental value here uh, that that buyers are looking for some certainty here when they're buying these carbon credits. When you think of, you know, go back to Chicago Climate Exchange and what happened there 10, 12 years ago, right? We, we saw what happened when 
There was an impending regulation or requirement that never came to fruition. But the other component there that helped lead to that downfall was the fact that the buyers really didn't know what they were getting. Sure. Um, a lot of the credits there were going back many, many years. And it was unclear, okay, if the grower is already doing that for a number of years, what am I actually buying? And that became really difficult for the buyer to invest or buy that credit when they knew that they couldn't stand behind that and present that to their customers because their customers would see through that. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a fundamental issue that Indigo is always aware of and recognizing that you only have a market if you have good, solid buyers for that market. So that's why we have a high standard for our carbon credits. And part of that involves getting enough data so that we can give that confidence to buyers that what they're buying is what happened on the land and they can stand behind that and talk about that to their customers. So in in the case of some of the no-till growers out there, and I I fit the bill, I've been no-tilling for 12 years now. And and so the, the question becomes, is there an opportunity for, for a grower like me who's been doing this for a number of years? So there's, again, a couple of different ways you can look at this. So as you mentioned earlier, Frank, any time that you take on new land, you have an opportunity there. If it's been, been treated or been managed conventionally, your chance to convert that again to regenerative. So no-till, maybe some cover crops. So there's an opportunity to generate carbon credits there. There's another opportunity that perhaps there are other other farmers who hadn't been doing no-till, join the program, add no-till, and then you can take over that, that farmland. So it's a two-step process. But in the Indigo Carbon Program, I feel that is participating in the program can continue to participate even when you have a transition in ownership or management. So you have an opportunity there. And then thirdly, and this one's probably the most important one is, again, remembering additionality. Any way that you can increase the net carbon sequestration or a a net reduction in greenhouse gas Uh, emissions. So not just increasing carbon sequestration, but reducing greenhouse gas emissions on that, on that piece of ground will generate carbon credits. So you think about all the different ways that we can accomplish those. So certainly adding cover crops, if you've already, if you're already doing cover crops, the longer the growing season for those cover crops, so planting them earlier, so getting them interplant, uh, interseeded, Terminating them later. So maybe for terminating at planting, maybe you can let them go a week and terminate a week after planting or building out the the diversity of that cover crop mix. And certainly the same thing can be said about nitrogen management. If, if you're doing top dress, switch over to side dress. If you're doing fall, go to spring. If you're, there's a lot of different avenues in there within the Indigo carbon program to generate carbon credits. So what are you finding out in talking to veteran no-tillers? Do they see, they get excited about this or they kind of think, well, I'm not going to qualify or you got to have a serious talk with each of them. (laughs) Yeah, it's, 
It's, it's really runs a gamut. It's, it's again, where each individual farmer is in their comfort level with the idea of adding something to their operation. And for some of, for some growers, that's perfect timing that, Hey, I've been no-tilling for seven years now and I just started cover cropping and I did a winter kill cover crop on one field I might as well, might as well bang out and, and do the whole thing. It's worked great so far. Let me just build it out. So, so I, I think for a lot of growers, they're very excited. And for others, it's forcing them to think about things again, getting into the granularity of detail to think about, okay, what are those areas where I can keep tweaking mm-hmm. and make things just a little bit better? So if you've been planting cereal rye as a cover crop and you go to a mix, are you going to pick up some carbon there? Right. The, the numbers would say, and again, you know, each farm situation, farm field, um, climate scenario could be a little different. Right. But generally speaking, that's, that's what we found in our modeling. So if you look at a program of one of your competitors where they say they're going to go back and give you credit back for 10 years, how are they going to do that? Or how would they do it? Or don't, maybe you don't want to speculate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I don't know. You know, we've, Indigo has built out our program, um, trying to design it to be as advantageous, not, not necessarily looking backwards, but looking forwards. How do we build out the most value for growers right. going into the future and not necessarily claiming value in the past? So, so ours is a, definitely a forward-looking program. Yeah. I take it you're going to have to sit down. Everybody thinks they're going to qualify. You're going to have to sit down and spend some time with them, a lot of time or a little time or what? Yeah. And again, you know, growers are all over the place when it comes right. to taking a look at which regenerative practices they want to implement. Some growers have been studying and learning and, and, and listening to other growers and asking questions. And so they're right there. You know, another set of growers may have some more concerns. They have a little more knowledge to build up first before they have that confidence to have success. Right. This. And, and certainly Indigo is there to help growers at every stage so that they can feel comfortable and confident you know, the last thing that we want to ever do is convince a grower to do a practice that won't work for them. We're here for the long term, and it doesn't help us to just generate credits for two years and then to have that grower leave the program. Right. We want to have a grower here for the long for the long term because that's a value to them and it's a value to us. Right. You mentioned the climate exchange, and it reminds me, it must be a dozen years ago or so, just before the National Notewitch Conference, they, we got a phone call from them. They were all excited. They were just launching their program. And at the last minute, we found them a slot in the hotel conference program, and everybody was excited about it, but it never really amounted. They, they couldn't get it going over the years. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the key factors here, and, and and distinguishing factors besides the awareness of additionality and, and making sure that we're protecting the buyer and meeting the, where they are is the level of data and mm-hmm. the, and the software that's available. So, um, you know, we're able to model much more accurately now, 10 or 15 years later than when they were trying to make that effort. We are able to quantify and to estimate far better than they could back then. And we've also 
you know, are fully aware that growers data is important. And so, um, so we're taking every precaution to protect that and make sure that it is for, purely to the benefit of the grower in this program. All right. I just wrote an article or a column for our, our June issue of No-Till Farmer on the Canadian situation in Saskatchewan. And 74% of the grain ground in Saskatchewan is being no-tilled. And the government pretty much has said, you people who are no-tilling aren't going to be part of our credit, our carbon credit program. And so they're a little dismayed and un, unhappy with what's going on out there because they've been a real leader in no-till and now they kind of feel they're getting penalized for it. Yeah, you know, that's, um, you know, I can understand that. And, and certainly that's, you know, I can, I can relate to that. You know, again, I think it comes back to the science is really what these markets are all about is changing the direction and the inflection of total carbon dioxide emissions. Right. And, and so that within that definition right there, it has to be new sequestration. It has to be new avoided emissions. Otherwise, if we're rewarding what had been done years ago, there's a challenge that, okay, it's not actually helping towards the goal, the fundamental principle goal of this market, which is to address that, that carbon balance. Right. Well, I think one of the problems in Canada, and I failed to mention this, is if, if there's a practice that's got a, over a 40% adoption rate, then they say that practice doesn't qualify. So even if, if you were a no-tower and adding extra acres, I'm not sure you could qualify under the Canadian program because they say no-tills too far along to qualify for that. So you can see why people are unhappy. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it, it, it's certainly a, a challenge and, and, you know, there's some growth and discovery and as we figure out how to effectively manage this carbon market. What do you think is going to happen with the Biden climate control uh, program as far as carbon's concerned? He's got to be close to getting it out these days. Yeah, you know, again, all speculation there um, from from what the uh, what Secretary Vilsack and Department of Ag has been indicating that they're certainly not going to replicate carbon markets out there. They want to work with the private markets that are functioning. Mm-hmm. And if anything, they want to build that out. Um, so, so I think that's a that's a really good sign that the, I'm hopeful that they will take a look at how do we make these markets work more efficiently. And I, I would think. And I would suggest that the the best way to do that is to help improve the flow of information from from the grower to the buyer and and vice versa, so that everybody can operate on a level playing field. That's that's the definition of an efficient market. Uh, going back to the Canadian thing for a minute, do you think private companies are going to be involved in Canada, or is it going to be a total Canadian government program, or is it too early to tell? I, on- yeah, I honestly haven't been watching the the Canadian situation. So you know, it, it it's such a it's such a different context um, f- for them compared to right, us. So they have right, different right. different politics, different government structure. Yeah, I uh, it'll be interesting. I think you answered my questions. Have I missed anything we should talk about? Yeah, I, I think you know you asked a lot of really good good questions, Frank, and I and I think it's. Um, 
I think it's important for every grower to ask those questions themselves when they're looking at any carbon program is to, to take a look at, hey, what's, what's the biggest value for me here? Um, is it to capture a couple of years going backwards or is it to lay the foundation for long-term value to your operation? And so when you take a look at looking at it forward-wise, ask yourself which program is going to help you do that. I do have another question I thought of as I was talking to you. Sorry, I'm not going to let you get off the hook. Now. Yeah. <laughs> you got the old Columbo routine. One more question. Exactly, one exactly, more. exactly. So you got a farmer who's renting land. He's, he's renting 400 acres from an absentee landowner. Who's going to get the carbon credits? Do you work with both parties or either one or what? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So Indigo Carbon works with the operator. Okay. So our carbon contract is with the farmer. All right. And then let's say he's renting this 400 acres and five years from now he loses the land and you've still got a contract with him. What happens? That's my last question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm, the, we want to be very clear here. So in that situation where a grower either voluntarily or involuntarily has to leave the program, right. the way we structure our program, we will never reach back into a grower's pocket and try to get cash back from that grower. Okay. So our payments are, are one way. Gotcha. They would just um, stop. The, the payments would just simply stop. That's correct. Right. Okay. But in the event, so again, in Frank, in your situation, let's say that grower is able to get that land back. And in the meantime, another renter maintained those practices, then those yeah. payments pick back. Right. Hey, Ryan, it's been great. I think that's all I need. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it's great. Great catching up with you again, Frank. Okay. And, One uh, of these days, we'll have to come up and see you. Yeah, Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast about the carbon marketplace. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. One of the things that comes up and comes up frequently, a question from readers, particularly people who aren't yet no-tilling, is am I going to lose any yield difference to no-till? Well. Some of the really basic no-till research was done at Ohio State University by Grover Triplett and uh, D.M. Van Dorn way back in uh, 1960 to 1962. And this is when they started no-tilling corn in, without the use of plowing or secondary tillage. And the, con the key was the control of non-crop vegetation with herbicides without injuring the no-till corn. So they had 23 replicated experiments where corn was no-tilled into alfalfa sod, and the researchers found no yield differences with corn between the no-till and conventional systems on soils ranging anywhere from silt loam to clay. So as far back as the early 1960s, researchers showed there was no yield loss with no-till. Thanks to Frank Lesseter, Ryan Sockwell, and Karthik Carruther for today's conversations. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. 
please keep in mind that the carbon marketplace is a rapidly evolving field, and what's true today may change before long. So be sure to read any contracts or fine print if you sign up for our carbon credit program. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at nontillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Nurtil Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.